Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk, full the press, full the press. Extra, extra, read all about it, it's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project, your half hour of commentary and analysis on media issues of the week, and we are very grateful to have you with us. My name is Rex Smith. I will be your host moderating this unruly band, Dr. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, and Barbara Lombardo, your media projectors of this week. And we are once again outside the studio because of the recurrence of, well, you know what. A roll call here. Dr. Shartok, you're there. Yo, I'm here, and I'm delighted to be here, you know, every day that we continue on on Earth is good for at least us. You know what I mean? <laughs> Rosemary Armeo, do I hear you? You do. I'm here. Rosemary, longtime investigative journalist teaching now at the University of Albany. Barbara Lombardo, longtime former editor of the uh, Saratogian, executive editor of the Troy Record as well. Are you with us, Barbara? Present. <laughs> Okay, we're all here. We're going to talk about first Afghanistan, because, of course, that was the huge story that played out across the media since our last show, the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. In the media world, there is a bit to say. And that is a very interesting analysis written by a longtime foreign correspondent named Peter Klein, who now teaches at the University of British Columbia. He wrote in Columbia Journalism Review that the media bears some responsibility for this. He says generations of reporters have traveled to war zones to gloriously bear witness. And while he says that's great, he says what we often fail to do is step back and reflect on the meaning of the larger war and its likely legacy. So, Dr. Shartok, you have any thoughts on this as an actual political scientist here among us? Who writes a couple of columns a week and knows one piece of truth, and that is it keeps on rolling around. Right, Rex? <laughs> you do, too. <laughs> and we know you need a column. This sounds like a you need a column, which is a first cousin to a you need a biscuit. And, you know... <laughs> The fact is, the easiest thing to do is say, we should be doing more, we should be doing this kind of thing. Look, I think some journalists I've been seeing, including the lady from CNN, has been doing remarkable, remarkable jobs. I mean, she risks getting beaten up every day. They tell her to put a mask on, they shove her around. I think that, again, the admonition that all of you on the panel have given us all over and over again is all the media ain't the same. And I have a pretty good idea of what's going on there based on what I'm seeing and what I'm reading. Yeah, I'm just screaming in outrage at that. I think it's not right. The best picture we have of Afghanistan right now comes from Craig Whitlock at the Washington Post, who FOI dozens of papers they've been compared to the Pentagon Papers. And it is nothing but a look back at how we got into and involved and admired in Afghanistan. Clarissa Ward, who Alan referred to at CNN, is doing an amazing job of actual war coverage right now. She's in there covering the fall. It's fearless, it's calm, it's just absolutely riveting. 
The New York Times has done amazing coverage out of Pakistan and Afghanistan. I know the woman who, who is responsible. They've written books about it. They've moved from journalism to history. So it simply is not right. The failure of war correspondence is to get the attention of readers. We forgot about Afghanistan. By we, I don't mean journalists. I mean readers. We didn't care about it anymore. It was far away. It didn't involve people who were involved. And even the numbers got small. You know, 2,500. That pales in comparison to coronavirus. We were looking elsewhere, and we did not pay attention to what journalists were trying to tell us. And that's the problem that we're seeing right now. You know, Barbara, what Rosemary is saying is that, you know, readers will pay attention to what they will. Animals losing their homes draws in readers in the local press, but we don't write about the details, perhaps, that lead to an overabundance of certain animals. Do you see a parallel there in what readers are looking for versus the sort of broader picture that we need to pay attention to? I do, and I think that Rosemary hit the nail on the head, that the thematic stories that tell the details and tell what's happening and the background, and as opposed to the episodic stories, what just happened now, the breaking news, that is out there, but it is harder to find, and we're not looking for it. And if people did see it, there's the think pieces, the thoughtful in-depth pieces are things that you can decide to turn the page if you're not really interested, and most people are not going to be interested because it's not riveting at the moment. So it's unfair to say that the media have not covered it. You know, I think you have a, a really significant point there. One of the key elements of ethical journalism is making the journalism accessible to people. It doesn't do you any good, let's say, to write a story that nobody reads, which is why frequently editors are telling reporters, you know, instead of 2,000 words, give me 800, because people may read 800 words, and you can write everything you want, but people aren't going to read it if you go on and on and on. So while journalism's first obligation is to the truth, it also has an obligation to be accessible and to respond to what people are demanding. And I think Rosemary's point is that people aren't looking for the kind of coverage that day in and day out gives you that kind of depth. I think the media could help in addressing this if the media keep referring back to what they might consider the competitors' pieces that tells how did we get to where we are so that when we are reporting this, oh, we're so surprised that this happened, we didn't expect this to happen. And then they could follow that up with, but in the New York Times or the Washington Post or whoever has been following these closely, they can cite things to help the readers put this into context. Because we in the media sound as surprised as the general public in reporting these things, and we shouldn't be. We should be using the better reporting as a resource. Mm-hmm. I think we were surprised. I think the U.S. government was surprised and surprises story. So I'm I'm not sure that I agree with that. I still see the problem as when people say to us, and we've all heard this, oh, there's no coverage of name the topic X, Y, and Z, Afghanistan in this case. What they mean is there is not day-to-day hounding coverage of the sort of January 6th. That we covered. No one says we didn't cover that. But Afghanistan has been 20 years of coverage. Yeah, there have been moments when you might not even have seen Afghanistan in the newspaper for a while. I remember a time when the One of the newspapers was printing every day a tally of how many Americans had died in Afghanistan because the feeling was that people had forgotten about them. 
So 20 years is a hard time to maintain coverage of a story. And how are we supposed to make people see this? Journalism involves two things. One is the news gathering we're responsible for and getting it out and making it readable. I'm sorry, I've read a lot of this stuff, except for the names, the Muslim names, which are impossible to distinguish one from the other for Americans, I think. The coverage has been coherent and clear, but we can't make people read. They're not going to read this if they think that it does not involve them. And I don't know how the in Boston, because truly, we were not. There's not a draft. We were not inconvenienced in any way in America by that war in Afghanistan. We did not ration. We didn't send our sons or daughters off. How were we supposed to make them feel engaged when they really were not? Well, some of their sons and daughters were sent, that's for sure, right? Yes, but they were volunteers. It wasn't a broad cross-section of America that was no. involved in the fight. And again, what we would see in the coverage that you would get would be when a local soldier would fall. Then there would be local coverage and people would pay attention. But the notion that people didn't care to pay attention to was that by most accounts, Afghanistan was an untenable battle. The local mm. forces have outgunned Western generals for generations, and that that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, but that is a matter for the policymakers, for those who created the war in America. That is not something that is determined by the media. That is not our coverage. I'd like to hear Rosemary's views on why people read certain stories. In other words, this story is bad news. We know, as Rosemary has pointed out in the past, that if you do an animal story, people don't want it. But this is hard news to take. America has basically been defeated here, and it's bad news. Rosemary? People mind reading bad news. It has to be dramatic which this certainly is, you know, women being whipped in the streets, which we're reading about now, and helicopters trying to pull people out as in Saigon. That's pretty dramatic, so people will read it. But why people read doesn't change across either the level of reporting, local or national, or the time. It's about things they care about. So write about food, you're going to get readers. Write about animals, you're going to get readers. Write about sex, you're definitely going to get readers. Write about scandal, you might get it, although we're getting kind of sick of that now, too. It has to have a hint of some of the other things, uh, scandal involving sex still sells. So some stories just simply don't have that. I think Afghanistan is one. I think anything involving Africa is number two. We don't read about it. Americans don't like to read a whole lot about foreign news. That's why you've seen newspapers and other outlets cut back. They save money by not covering foreign news anymore. And again, it's because of the remoteness of it. We want to read about our jobs, our children. We'll read about coronavirus in America, but not elsewhere. We don't care about Africa, for example, not having any viruses. We're, we're a rich, remote, powerful country. And our interest in coverage, I think, reflects that. Isn't it true that our interests are a reflection of our emotional connection to topics, which is why cable news that reinforces our points of view by Fox News or by MSNBC, these get us emotionally because we're saying, yeah, that's right, yeah. And so Fox News fundamentally is about taking it to the libs. And if that gives people a little jolt, that stimulates the right-wing thinking, and so therefore it's popular. And I wish I had a smart sense of how to combat the fact that we only pay attention to that which emotionally stimulates us, right? Not intellectually, not even economically until it's our own pocketbook. The broader themes of things are hard for people to really identify with and grab onto. Well put. 
When I was a, a reporter covering the state capitol, one of my editors thought that I really ought to pay attention to the Public Service Commission of New York State. Well, you know, that is the outfit that regulates public utilities. So how much you pay for electricity and how water is delivered and power is delivered to you, that's the Public Service Commission. It's a tremendously influential body, but it's tremendously boring to readers. By the commission of my editor, I went ahead and produced 3,000 words on this, which sat there waiting to be published until finally one Monday they put in 800 words of it. And my beautiful big piece got almost nothing. So I became an expert in the Public Service Commission, but the fact is it was the flawed concept of the editor that readers would be interested in this. And while it was important news, it didn't reach anyone on an emotional level. And the result is it was a failed bit of journalism. This is really interesting. I think you hit on it with this emotional thing. And if you figure out an answer for it, not only journalists will thank you, but professors who constantly are saying, you need to read this, this will educate you. That's the effort. That's called homework. And we don't do it unless we're, there's a grade or parent displeasure at stake here. That is a huge problem in a democracy where you have to have citizens who know stuff. We don't know enough in America. We're seeing that with coronavirus. How do we make people see the value of the science of vaccine? Vaccines. Isn't that related? Isn't that the same thing? And the key is, what does it mean to me? And I don't have the easy answer for always answering that question, but even the PSC type of stories, if written in a way of what does it mean to me as a taxpayer? How is it going to affect my pocketbook? How is it going to affect my access to communications? So the long piece that you might have written might have some value as a background historical piece, but the individual stories need to hit people home and in their pocketbook. And the least that people know about a particular subject like the PSC, the more that journalists can do who have been assigned a story, but who really are not doing adequate duty to it. I, I always think of the time that a reporter in the Capitol writing on the PSC wrote a story about who Papa Cuomo was going to name the PSC, and he named five names, and mine was the fifth name. And I always thought that that was remarkable because Don Decker, who was my boss at Channel 6, hit the roof and told me I had sworn I was going to run for political office, called the guy up, and the guy said, I just made it up now. (laughs) (laughs) But that story got your attention. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. And to Rosemary's point, this is relevant to the current debate over masking and vaccinations when there is an emotional connection. What is drawing people's attention these days are these huge, angry school board meetings where parents are showing up and saying, you're not going to mask my kids. That is now what we're covering Mm. while the science is well established, but people are disregarding the science. That is an audience problem, isn't it? Not a journalism problem. I don't know how you overcome that. It is a journalism problem in that people have to read and or listen. And so, therefore, it's a problem. No? Yes. I'm going to try an experiment with my students. Monday is going to be the last day in office for Governor Cuomo. And I'm going to want the students to come up with story ideas for the Albany Student Press that would be relevant to them. What does the governor's leaving and Hochul coming in, what does it mean to students? What could it mean? And so trying to come up with story ideas that they would actually want to read because it would be relevant. I'm open to any ideas our readers might have when they want to email us. What do you think of that? First, I have to explain to students who Kathy Hochul is, I think. That's going to be difficult. The thing that is so perplexing you know, about this is whether students or readers can relate 
to what is being said. So this governor comes on, right, to women, 11 women accuse him of having been intemperate in the way in which he treated them. And sex rears its ugly head, as we have said too many times. And people respond to that. But as a student, and this goes to you, Barbara, or Rosemary, who are teaching these two classes now, is a student saying, hey, wait a second, I do that all the time. Or are they saying, isn't that terrible? And that's something a newspaper or a journalist would have to deal with. I guess the point would be whether, to me, whether it's the governor's office or COVID or Afghanistan, the stories have to touch the reader in some way. Absolutely. To reach an emotional point there, again, is telling, I think, that there were many scandals involving the governorship of Andrew Cuomo, well recounted by the media. At least that's my perspective from being the editor of the Times Union during most of his tenure. But the fact is that nothing got the public's attention. Nothing propelled him out of office, none of that scandalous behavior, until it got to be the issue of sex. Then suddenly people paid attention. Then it became something that pushed him away. You could make a valid argument that the financial improprieties, the toxic work environment, even unrelated to sex, the toxic work environment that he had created in the executive chamber would have been matter enough to get him out of office, but it didn't touch people emotionally until they could identify with the sexual harassment. I'm telling you, sex that sells. Monica Lewinsky, sex. Cuomo, definitely sex. All the stuff at Fox News, the Me Too movement. And this is international, too. In the Philippines, they brought down a bunch of little investigative reporters with no power at all, brought down the prime minister when they reported on mansions and cars he bought for a series of mistresses with the public dime. It's money, yes, sort of. But it's like you found out with the PSC. They don't want to know the inner workings. If you wrote... 500 words saying your bill's going up, here's why, they would have read that. But you didn't. You wanted to make them citizens, make them informed, knowledgeable citizens, able to be involved and get into it. Journalists like that, we're all wants. I want to get involved and change everything, but most of our readers don't. And that means not just writing shorter, it means writing really simple and straightforward. If we had been writing one story every month saying we're still in Afghanistan, why? We're losing men. We're spending money. Here's what we could have spent the money on instead. What are you doing, mister? And then name the president because there have been four of them who have gotten us involved in this. It might have made a difference. It's, 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 this is no different. Afghanistan is no different in the way it happened and the way it was covered than Vietnam. And that's on us. What are we to do about climate coverage then, for example? It's not sex, you know. It is the existential issue of our time, I think. Um, The United Nations has this now alarming report. The problem is intensifying. Uh, It is code red for humanity, the UN says. Um, But um, the, the, the coverage is at best uneven. Um, one uh, writer who tracks uh, CNN uh, points out that uh, they did 11 reports, um, 33 minutes of coverage, which is a lot on uh, cable news, but CNN only did it during the daytime, outside of prime time. When it came time to prime time, then it was uh, on to uh, political uh, falderall. Um, How do you get people to pay attention, though, to something that is unquestionably important, as every journalist knows, climate coverage, but it doesn't get the response from readers? Anybody have a smart idea there? 
Well, don't you think it's beginning to happen? I mean, we are being affected in uh, fires and flooding and what you can grow in your garden. Everything is being changed now because of climate control. I, I would maintain that we are beginning to see people pay attention. What hasn't changed is we haven't gotten the attention of people who can do something about it. And those are our representatives in Congress. Am I wrong? You may be wrong. Time will tell on this one, though, Rosemary. You know, up to now, it's been very disappointing. I know that uh, I'm on the air every morning at 7.45, and David Gustina, every morning, our, our producer here, as a matter of fact, asks me about climate change. I mean, we do not miss a morning in which we don't discuss climate change. And I'll tell you how many letters we get back. Zippo zero. Although there are people who write to us every day and say, well, why don't you discuss climate change when we do and do and do? That brings us back to the point that Rex is making from that uh, CNN watcher who notes that the times that climate change is being discussed, it's good that it's being discussed or it's being reported, but it's not necessarily being reported when a lot of people are turning in for news. It's not being reported during prime time. And that is a problem. That's a decision of the owners of the broadcast companies that are not reporting it on prime time. And I'll tell you where the problem lies, frankly, and that is with local television news. Uh, it's great that uh, this is being covered on in public media. Uh, I would venture to say that the people who listen to um, Northeast Public Radio are people who care about and recognize the climate issue. But local television newscasts tend not to pay attention. The meteorologists, uh, the, the people who provide weather forecasts on local television news, don't talk much about climate change. They talk about what's happening with the weather. But they are the people who ought to know and ought to be reporting about what's going on every single day. Uh, weather is, the, is what differentiates local uh, one local channel from another. That, as any television news uh, director these days will tell you, is what can make or break your uh, ratings as a local television newscast. And why they're not doing more climate coverage seems to me to be an abrogation of their responsibility. On the local level, we should be looking exactly at what pests are coming into our gardens because of climate change, what plants are overtaking us. Um, look at the spread of uh, um, the, the Japanese knotweed, this uh, ridiculous invasive that is overtaking all of the creeks in upstate New York and uh, squelching the uh, diversity of plant life. Those are, there are rich stories there that could really be told well with video that could be on local newscasts, and it's not being done by local television news teams. I don't know why. Doesn't affect their sex life. <laughs> Do people still get their weather news from local TV, or are they just using the app on their cell phone? Both. Yeah, I think the fact I, that uh, the, the local TV weathercasters are still uh, featured so prominently suggests that they're quite influential in the coverage. And to the extent that any local journalism has a voice, that's a powerful one, I'd say. Well, I think you make a really good point, but ultimately, I don't think it's the news media that's going to make a difference in climate change. I think it's going to be movies and entertainment media that can, for example, and I don't mean to be glib about this, find the sex angle in climate change. Hmm. Well, I'd like to know how that could be done. That's an, an interesting notion. By the way, to our listeners, if you have uh, thoughts on this or any other topics, media at WAMC.org is how you uh, intersect with us. Media at WAMC.org. Please send us your email thoughts 
Uh, we're here on the Media Project. I'm Rex Smith with uh, Rosemary Mayo, Barbara Lombardo, and Alan Shartok. Here's a provocative notion uh, that we need to take up before we run out of time here, and that is Ken Burns, the great documentarian, who now has a new public TV program, a, a new series on Muhammad Ali, and is drawing some criticism from the fact that he is, after all, a white man, Ken Burns. The question being, are there certain topics that ought to be covered only by people of a particular background? He says no, but there is a question as to whether, among some people, as to whether this is uh, whether it's appropriate for journalists uh, not of color to be writing about issues involving people of color. Who has a thought on that? I think that's ridiculous. Well, so that's two votes. That's two votes on ridiculous. American Dirt. Do you remember that? A gringo wrote about um, Mexican immigration into the United States and was roundly criticized by the Latino community for, you know, taking up a topic that was not hers culturally. And I think that was really dangerous. She put in the, the resource. She put in the research. She put in all the time and effort to write a book. And that stopped no one who is also Latino from writing. And it would be a whole different perspective. It's like saying a Wally Lamb should not write his books, which he's a man, but he writes from a woman's perspective. And they're incredibly interesting and intriguing. Um, it, it, it just denies creativity and freedom of license and license to publish, and it's a really dangerous notion. I think the only danger or, or unfortunate circumstance is when people who come from a certain culture may not be able to break into being able to tell their story, and some and a you know, wealthy, well-known white guy is taking over, is doing it instead. So there's that, we want to tell our story, whoever that we might be. But it's ridiculous to think that you have to be from a certain culture to be able to tell that story. Can the story of gay Americans be told by people outside the LGBTQ culture? Yes, of course. Of course it can, as well as somebody who is within that group. You know, I mean, the idea that impartial journalism has to stop because you have to be a participant in that culture. It seems ridiculous to me. I agree with Barbara. Depending on the culture, you are bringing, if it's your culture, whether it's LGBT, whether it's a minority or whether people from another country, when you're bringing your own life and history into it, you, you are adding to the mix. doesn't mean you're necessarily automatically going to be a good storyteller. And it doesn't mean you're the only one who can do it, who can tell that story. The story of of the gay community does not just belong to gay people. There are parents. There are women, for example, who have married men who turned out to be gay and were hiding it because that was our culture at the time. Those are compelling stories, and they are indeed books, and they should be written about. And if you carry this argument to its logical extreme, then you would, for example, be forbidding black reporters from covering anything in the predominantly white community. Is that what you want to do? Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's right. All right. We're going to have to say that is all we have time for this week. So we are grateful to our listeners for tuning into the Media Project, grateful to our producer, David Gustina, for being the guy who makes this all happen. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. Thank you for joining us this week on the Media Project. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. 
When they know they've got a people's fight to wage Ting-a-ling-a-ling, newspaper guild Got a free new world to build Meet the people, that's a thrill All together fits the bill The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and adjunct professor at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give three cheers for freedom of the press.